Are we good? Sweet. So I realized about halfway through last week's lesson in which we talked about Joab and Abner and Asahel and Ishbosheth and all of these different names, like it hit me as I was sitting here describing it to you guys, like this has got to be almost impossible to keep track of. Like I've spent all week studying this. I can't imagine trying to sit where you guys are and like follow along with all these names and relationships and kingdoms. So I apologize for that. I'm sure it was a little overwhelming. I appreciate your efforts to like keep up with me, but in a little bit of review, I actually made a chart this week that describes all of the relationships. And so we'll go back through chapters two and three very briefly and just describe what actually took place and we'll see how that sets us up for the events of chapter four. So in second Samuel chapter two, Saul has just died, and David has been made aware that he presumably is next in line to be king. And we think, okay, David's going to be king over a united Israel, but what ends up happening is that Saul's son Ishbosheth becomes king of Israel, while David just becomes king of only Judah. And each of those guys have their own commander. Ishbosheth. His commander is Abner, who also is related to Saul. He's Saul's cousin. And David's nephew, Joab, is also the commander of his army. Now, Joab has two brothers, Asahel and Abishai. And we'll see why that's important in just a second, because in 2 Samuel chapter 2, we have this description of a civil war that takes place between Israel and Judah, between Ishbosheth and David. So in the midst of this civil war, we zoom in on this event in which Asahel, Joab's brother, starts chasing Abner on the battlefield. And he is, the text says, as swift as a gazelle. He is just chasing hard after him. And Abner warns him a couple of times. He says, stop following me. Like, go after someone else, please. I do not want to kill you. Uh, I don't want to face Joab, your brother. But Asahel continues and pursues him even after two warnings. And finally, from what I might think may have been even an accident, Abner kills Asahel. Remember, he strikes him with the butt of his spear. Now, that makes me think that maybe he wasn't even trying to kill him, but he does. And so we have Abner, who kills Asahel, Joab's brother, down there. And you can see that with that death, uh, this is a little bit more personal than just Israel versus Judah, right? This is now Abner has pretty directly offended Joab and Abishai. Do you guys see that? He killed his brother. So we get to chapter three, and Ishbosheth accuses Abner of misconduct with one of his concubines, to which Abner replies, forget you. <laughs> I'm jumping ship, and I'll go join David in Judah. And I'm going to help him be king of a united Israel. See ya, Ishbosheth. So he goes and joins David and Judah. Now Ishbosheth has no one. But all of this goes down without Joab's knowledge. You see, Abner, he's very cunning. He's very persuasive. He's a leader. He starts talking to people in Israel and says, hey, let's follow David. Come on, join me. Let's go make David king of a united Israel. All of this goes on without Joab knowing about it. When Joab finds out that Abner is now on his team, he's furious. 
He, he gets really upset at David, says, don't you know, Abner's just here to make a mockery of you. He's here to spy, to scout out on you. What are you doing, David? And without David's knowledge, Joab summons for Abner, and he pulls him aside like he has a secret to tell him, and he stabs him right in the stomach. He kills Abner. The text actually links Abishai in this act, but it is Joab who does the deed of killing him. And that's kind of where the text dropped off in 2 Samuel 3, but we see that this action of Joab murdering Abner had long-lasting effects. 1 Kings chapter 2 actually commented on this. This is when David is giving his instructions to Solomon 30, maybe 40 years later. He says, you know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel. Abner, the son of Ner, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Uh, I find it fascinating, again, that decades after Joab killed Abner, David, in some of his dying words, it seems, says, don't forget what Joab did here. Solomon, you have unfinished business. Do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. And, and we concluded from this rather sad set of circumstances that we are not the ones responsible for enacting vengeance on those who have hurt us. Right? Who is? God. We should trust him. Romans 12 says, Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. To, to live this verse requires not just an obedience when people offend us to say, Man, I really want to take revenge on this individual, but it requires a trust that what God says here is true. That a just God will repay people for their wrongdoing. And I think there's a certain comfort that comes from trusting God to take vengeance, right? There are so many injustices going on in the world today, right? Uh, just turn on the news and you can see injustice taking place. Injustices that we certainly cannot make right. Our government, despite their best efforts, cannot right these wrongs. And, and there's a comfort in knowing that there is someone who is just, right? And for all of the injustice that we see, there is coming a day in which the judge of all the earth will come and right every wrong. And until that day, we plead with people, come to Christ. We do not want you to be judged by God's wrath. Someone has bore that judgment for you. Take refuge in Jesus, right? So that's a somewhat lengthy recap of the last two chapters that we looked at last week. I hope the chart made a little bit more sense to you as to what was going on with the relationships and who killed who. But Abner's death kind of leaves us in a unique position, right? He was sort of the catalyst that was the one that was the driving force between uh, uniting Israel and Judah. And now that he's gone, we kind of find ourselves uh, in no man's land, treading water. I mean, Abner was the guy who was going to do this work, and now uh, he's gone. 
what's happening. Well, that's where 2 Samuel chapter 4 picks up, if you wouldn't mind turning there with me. 2 Samuel chapter 4. We'll read just the first three verses. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Banna, and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a man from Benjamin, from Beeroth. For Beeroth is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gittim and have been sojourners there to this day. Just from verse 1, we see that Abner's death was not just troubling to David. This has ramifications for Ishbosheth as well. It says that he is, his courage fails. Uh, I mean, even though he had estranged Abner in, a, in, a, in his relationship, maybe there was a part of Ishbosheth that was still hanging on to hope that. Maybe Abner will come back around and fight for me, but now that he's dead, Ishbosheth is all by himself. We see that Israel is dismayed. Perhaps they were hopeful of a united kingdom, and now that their guy's dead, it's like, oh, we're still under Ishbosheth's reign. Uh, some of that is speculative, but here's what we do know. There's kind of a reshaping of this chart that I had introduced this lesson with. Still David and Joab ruling in Judah, but there are these two dudes who are introduced to us in the first three verses. Banna and Rechab, who aren't commanders per se, the text calls them captains, but it works well to stick them in this slot here. They kind of seem to be uh, military leaders at this point in Israel, replacing Abner. In verse 4, we have a description of Mephibosheth. Uh, let me just read it really quick. Verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. As she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. We'll read more about him later. Honestly, it's a little confusing as to why he's mentioned just kind of out of the blue here. Uh, verse 3 and 5 are connected, but then we have a random verse about Mephibosheth. From the best I can tell, commentators are just uh, alerting us to the fact that Saul does have other, um, what would you call that, heirs? Not really anyone that's fit to rule, but that is important in case someone decides to take Ishbosheth out. And unfortunately, that is what happens. People do come after Ishbosheth. We read about that in verse 5. Now the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, Rechab and Banna, set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth, as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. So what we have take place here is that these two guys, Banna and Rechab, sneak into Ishbosheth's house, and they kill him. 
and they take his head and they travel all night to go to David and they say, David, look what we did for you. Well, you know, we're on your team now. We've done you this great favor. In fact, if you notice, they even invoke God's name in this. Look back at verse 8, I believe. The last sentence of verse 8. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, on this day, on Saul and on his offspring. Can I ask you something? Does this sound familiar? Have you heard an event like this before already in 2 Samuel? When? Anyone remember? Yeah, do you guys remember that? Back in chapter 1, this Amalekite comes to David and he says, hey, look, I've got Saul's crown. I've got his armband. I killed Saul. Like, sticking his hand out, like, you're going to pay up, David? Like, I'm bringing you good news. How, how does David respond there? He kills the Amalekite and says, you would touch the Lord's anointed do we think David's response here when someone does the exact same thing in chapter 4 is going to be any different? Is David going to be like, wow, thank you, Banna and Recab. I was really starting to wonder if God was going to do what he had promised to me. So thank you guys so much for taking initiative here and making me king. Uh, I was, you know, it's been seven and a half years now since I've only been king of Judah. I know God promised me the whole thing and... Thank you guys for taking initiative and knocking off what is my enemy. Yeah, right. We, we know David. He, he does not say that. L look at verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Banna, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Honestly, knowing how David responded the first time around, we're not surprised that he responds the same way here in chapter 4, right? <laughs> same set of circumstances. He's like, he calls them wicked men who have killed a righteous man. And, and I cannot say enough about David's integrity here, right? From our perspective, it is very advantageous to David that Ishbosheth is now dead, right? L look, at the, look at the chart. There's no one now, king of Israel. It seems ripe for David's taking. <laughs> if we were David, we might say, hey, don't ask any questions, but here's Ishbosheth's head. 
come on, like, go be king of a combined Israel. David does not respond that way. He, he does not rejoice at wrongdoing, especially murder here, even a murder that is advantageous to him. He responds with justice. These men think they have done David a great favor, and their reward is to be put to death. And, and really, this highlights what I think is a significant theme of this chapter, and that is this, that David doesn't need people to intervene and do him favors so that God's will can come to pass, right? David's trust is in someone else to work out his plan. Look, if you will, back at verse 9. In David's reply, he says, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. David is not misguided about who it is that is working here. David doesn't think, thanks to the Amalekite, I got to be king of Judah. Or thanks to Banna and Rechab here, God's making me king. No, David says, it is the Lord who has delivered me from every adversity. I trust him to continue to work about what he has promised me. And this is a theme that really we can follow throughout David's whole life. Uh, uh, David is able to look back to when he was a shepherd boy. He speaks of this account in which, on a couple of occasions, lions and bears come into the flock, and David doesn't say, and I killed them with my bare hands myself. Look at who he gives credit to. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Same chapter, talking to Goliath, he says, God will deliver you into my hand. David is able to look back on the course of his whole life and say, you know what? I am only in this position because of God. I trust him to work out the details. I don't need human intervention to be king. Time and time and time again, God has preserved and protected and delivered me and set me up for this position. I trust him to bring it about. I don't need other people to try and force the issue for me. Uh, there's rich truth for us to consider here, which we will do at the end. But we're moving on now into chapter 5, and we read words that we have been expecting to hear for a while now. Look at chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Now, these are words that we've been waiting for for a long time. It almost comes like it's like a, brush, a breath of fresh air to us. Here's David, finally, king over a united Israel. And there's a couple of acknowledgments that people make that I think are particularly thoughtful. They say, you know what, David, even when Saul was king, it was you who was really doing the dirty work. 
Uh, you were the one who was providing the military leadership here. We recognize that. They recognize that David rising to the throne is a fulfillment of what God had promised to him. But I particularly like that line there in verse 2, where they quote God and they say, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel. And when phrased this way, we see that David's rule is just an extension of what he's already done in his life, right? David is a shepherd by trade. And they speak about his kingship in terms of being a shepherd. There, there really are not more tender terms to describe a ruler than that of a shepherd. A king has a certain connotation to it, powerful, majestic, awe-inspiring, authoritative, but a ruler who's called a shepherd, there's something really selfless about that. We've already seen, I, I mentioned it just a couple minutes ago, from David's own life as a shepherd, when people threaten the flock, he puts his own life at risk to deliver them. Uh, I, I couldn't help but think about Psalm 23, in which God is described as a shepherd to David, providing for him, caring for him, leading him. David concludes, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I lack nothing with God as my shepherd. And then as we progress through the Old Testament, we're given a glimpse into the future that tells us about another shepherd. Amazingly, also from Bethlehem, who is going to be a ruler. Matthew quotes that prophecy from the book of Micah and says this, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And obviously we know this to be who? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus speaks about himself as a shepherd of his people. John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The same actions that David is willing to do. Except Jesus does it for his children. Check out this in Revelation. This description of Jesus, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that text of scripture awesome? We have this description of a lamb who is also a shepherd. Interesting language there, but communicating this idea that the one who was sacrificed for you the one who died for you, who gave his life for you, is also your shepherd. And he will guide you to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I just appreciate the parallels here that we're seeing already in 2 Samuel of a humble shepherd from Bethlehem who is made king of Israel, who prefigures another humble baby born in Bethlehem, who was made king of kings. Right? Isn't that awesome? 
And, and it just like cements what I think might be the theme verse of 2 Samuel, this promise that God makes to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And that is realized in Christ. And, and I hope that the point is clear to you that yes, David is a great king. We've observed this morning some of the greatness of David, his integrity, his military might, but there is a king better than David who is coming to rule and to reign. That excites me. Those connections in scripture are awesome. All right, we've got to continue our, 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 where we're at in the lesson here. Um, let's pick up in verse 6. One of the first acts that David does as king is to start, you know, putting his kingdom together. Verse 6 tells us, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here. But the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward, and David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Here we see the account of David taking Jerusalem. It's not yet an Israelite possession, and David goes up against it, and the Jebusites that live there currently, they're pretty confident, huh? They tell David, listen, even the blind and the lame are going to be able to ward you off. We're so confident you aren't getting in here. Well, <laughs> maybe they shouldn't have been so cocky because David finds a way into the city, uh, destroys it, and makes it his capital. And interestingly enough, Chronicles tells us that it's actually Joab who is the first to enter the city. He leads the charge and, and really like helps set up the Israel presence in Jerusalem. And so we're thinking, man, like Joab couldn't have been anyone else, right? Like here's the guy who's a murderer, just kind of does whatever he wants. And yet he does pretty awesome stuff. Like here he is helping David. We're not sure whether we love him or hate him. We're not sure if he's going to stab us in the back in one chapter or if he's going to do some great military feat. We're just kind of like, ugh. I don't really know what to do with Joab. We're going to continue to have that tension throughout this book. He, he is very polarizing. I think I said last week he marches to the beat of his own drum. That is very true. Joab does not care about authority. He just does what's best for him. But particularly from this section of scripture here, I want us to hone in on verse 10. We read this account of David becoming greater and greater. Notice who's credited for that. The Lord. The God of hosts was with him. And that's reiterated in verses 11 and 12. We see, and when Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Uh, here a guy is, king of Tyre, Hiram, sends David all of these supplies to build a house. And if we're David, we're thinking, I am pretty awesome. Send gifts my way, thank you very much. I would love a mansion, Hiram. Great. But David is self-aware enough to realize, as verse 12 says, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. N notice who it doesn't say. 
doesn't say Banna and Rechab had established David as king over Israel. Doesn't, doesn't say the Amalekite established David king over Israel. It is the Lord. That's important. And notice the particular reason that God raised him to be king. Last line of verse 12, that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. You know, God wasn't orchestrating this rise to power for David's own sake, as if, David, you've done a good job of following me. I'm going to reward you and make you king. No, God's purpose for rising up David as king was so that all Israel would benefit. And and I just want us to stop here and consider God's provision for for his people. Because this whole position of king exists because the people threw off God's kingship of them. Right? Remember, when the people tell Samuel hey, we want a king. Samuel takes it kind of personally, and God says, no, 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 no. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. Who are they rejecting? They're rejecting me. These people do not want me as their king over them anymore. And yet God, in his provision, equips Saul with the spirit. And for a while, Saul is actually a good king. And But, you know, obviously Saul goes by the wayside, and God raises up David to be king. And under David's reign, the whole nation of Israel prospers. And we're like, God, when people reject us, we have a short leash with them. If someone rejects us, we're like, see ya. I don't need you. God could have very easily done the same thing here. And yet his compassion and his steadfast love for his people is astonishing. And that even after the rejection of him, he raises up kings not just for the sake of having a king, but so that the nation of Israel will benefit from it. Uh, Amazing. God's provision floors me here. These people don't deserve God's goodness to them. Verses 13 to 15, we're not going to read. It's just a description of David's family growing, accumulating more wives, more sons. Verses 17 to 25 uh, have this description of his defeat of the Philistines. I'll read that briefly, verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up. I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated him there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of the Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up. Go around to the rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Jezir. If you remember, this isn't really a surprise to us, the Philistines are kind of the perennial enemies of Israel. Like, nine times out of ten, if I were to ask you who's Israel fighting, the Philistines. And and David kind of has a mixed history with them. It's A little humorous if you think about it. Uh, On the one hand, he killed their champion, Goliath. I didn't imagine that that endeared him to the Philistines too much. But 
like chapters later in 1 Samuel when he's fleeing from Saul, he runs to the Philistines. And he starts like becoming like a, a commander of his own little band of men under the supervision of the Philistines. He kind of gets chummy with their king. They're kind of friends. And it doesn't seem like in this interaction that the Philistines are eager to, eager to rekindle that friendship with David. Like, hey, man, glad you're king now. Uh, are we still allies? Uh, no, they're actually coming after David to kill him. And interestingly enough, twice we read that David inquires of the Lord. Uh, he's been making a habit of this in previous chapters. Whenever there's a big decision, really any decision, David inquires of God. He says, Lord, what would you have me to do here? And again, I think there's some truth for us in that, that when we are confronted with decisions that maybe seem obvious, like do you fight your enemies? David says, hey, I'm going to ask God first. Seek his counsel in this. And God actually has different answers. The first time he says yes. The second time he says, uh, I'm going to lead you uh, with my own army. You're going to hear this noise in the balsam trees. After you hear that, then go. And it's like God is going before him into battle. David is really starting off his kingship pretty well here with integrity, trusting God. This is the end of these two chapters, but I'd like to circle back around to an idea that we've already alluded to this morning, and that is just David's trust in God's sovereign plan. David's patience with what God is doing is amazing to me. I saw some estimates. Actually, it seems like most scholars agree that David had to wait 15 years from the time of his anointing at the hand of Samuel to in chapter 5 when he becomes king of all of Israel. 15 years. And it wasn't like that was an easy 15 years in which people were just like waving palm branches at him and giving him drinks. And he's like, okay, I'll just wait 15 years for this to happen. These were a tough 15 years. Seven and a half of those are spent only king of one tribe. Some of that time is spent being hunted by the current king, Saul, running for his life, wondering, presumably, like, at least I'll speak for myself, is God really going to keep his promises here? Like, a year passes, okay. I still trust God. Fifteen? Until God's promise is realized? If I were David, I'd be very frustrated with the timing of all of these things. And yet, never once did David act rashly, Never once did he try and manipulate his circumstances to try and accelerate God's plan for his life. In fact, when people did, we saw it today, he kills them. And he says, listen, I don't need you to do what God has already promised me. I trust God's timing. I trust God's provision. The Lord has redeemed my life out of every adversity, and I trust him to work out his plan in his timing. And I think there's a question for us then this morning. Do you trust God's timing? Right? Or do you get frustrated when things don't go according to plan? 
when you look at your life and you're like, this is not going the way that I would have drawn this up. Do you, do you get frustrated? How about this question? Do you take matters into your own hands? Do you look at the circumstances of your life and conclude, you know what? God's not working, so it's on me to make this happen. And I'm going to throw my weight around and elbow people out so that what I want, I get. Maybe this, do you direct accusations towards God? Say, God, do you know? Do, do, do you really know what I'm going through right now? Better yet, do you care? My life is so hard. I'm going through something that I would not wish upon an enemy of mine. Maybe the most dangerous accusation against God. Are you going to give me what I want? I know better. We look at David's life. See the inconveniences that he went through. And we ask ourselves, how did he do it? Because I'm looking at my place in my career. I'm looking at my financial situation. I'm looking at a relationship. I'm looking at a death in the family. I'm looking at all of these things, like health, like you name it, that are just looming so large in my mind, and God is doing nothing about it. Where are you, God? Can I remind you of just a couple simple truths this morning if you are feeling discontent in the circumstances of your life? If you find that you've just kind of plateaued and God doesn't know or care or isn't acting on things, Scripture speaks to that. First, God is sovereign over all things. At no point in these two chapters did God somehow lose control of the situation did he somehow, oh, David, I just remembered after 15 years that I had told you you were going to be king. Ah, oh, my bad. No. God never loses control of situations. In fact, in Job, Job concludes after God just hits him with this barrage of questions, Job says, I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In Ephesians chapter 1, the context is talking about predestination as children of God, but Paul says this about that, that according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, God is in control of not just predestination, but all things. God has never lost control 
He's not caught off guard by our circumstances. If something is happening in your life that honestly you'd rather not be going through, we have to trust that God has allowed it in his sovereignty. It's for a reason. And God's sovereignty could actually be kind of a scary thing. Right, right, right. Like if you tell me that there is this being who knows everything, who's all-powerful, and we're just kind of at the whim of the decisions that he makes, that could be a little bit scary if this were also not true about God. That he is good. That that all-powerful, all-knowing being is good. And he loves us. Look what Psalm 145 says. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. How about this from a book we don't turn to too often? Nahum. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. There's been a song that has been a comfort to my soul recently, which opening line goes like this. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. That should be of great comfort to us believers. When we feel tossed by the waves of this life, when David is waiting 15 years to be king, God is good. And as Romans 8.28 says, he's working out all things for good. And that the things of our life that, as has gone on to list in Romans chapter 8, persecution and death and nakedness and famine, none of those things are evidence that God has ceased to stop or has ceased to love us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So let me encourage you as we close this morning to follow David's example. David's able to look back in his history and say, you know what? The lion and the bear, God delivered me. Goliath, God delivered me. All these other examples, God delivered me. You know what? Things aren't quite working out in the speed that maybe I would like, but I can trust that God is going to continue to redeem my life out of every adversity as he always has. So let me encourage you to spend some time this week, if you find yourself discontent with your state in life or just kind of like, what is happening? To look back in your past. Remember what God has done for you? He has provided for you beyond our comprehension. And as you begin to remember, as you begin to reflect on God's goodness, I trust that you'll find your confidence growing and you'll be like, you know what? I trust you, Lord. You've never left me. You've never forsaken me. You're good. I can submit myself to your kingship and trust that there is a good, sovereign God who is working out all things for good. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your goodness, your provision for us. Thank you for the life of David in which we find ourselves often in similar circumstances of maybe wondering or questioning or discontentment, and yet we can see a biblical example of someone who just trusted you. Lord, let us not take matters into our own hands or do things that are even wrong 
to accomplish what we think we want or need. Let us just show a humble trust in your provision, in your care, what you've said you will do. Thank you, Lord, for your provision for us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.